Welcome to Honorverse Today, the Honor Harrington podcast brought to you by TPE Network. Let's be about it. Hello there, Honorverse fans. Welcome to our next exciting, somewhat different than usual, episode of Honorverse Today. This is Ro Wybera, and I am joined, as always, by my good friends Jim Arrowwood and J.P. Harvey. How are the two of you today? Doing very well. I'm ready to talk about this anthology. Yeah. For those of you who were anticipating to hear about Echoes of Honor. Gee, Honor just escaped and she's headed to hell, literally. Sorry, not yet. Because before that next book came out, David Weber released the first of his anthologies, More Than Honor. Some of it he wrote, some of it, uh, some of the anthologies he's invited uh, particular guests to write. And in this particular case, we have, I believe, three stories and an essay. Mm-hmm. One of the stories is by David Weber, and it's pure Honor Harrington. Well, not Honor Harrington, but pure David Weber Honorverse. Another is by David Drake. Uh, many of you might know him as the guy who wrote uh, Hammer Slammers. And then another, those of you who have followed us from Babylon 5 will definitely remember S.M. Sterling, which is another very well-known author. So those are the three books, are the three stories. And then there's another piece by David Weber that goes into a lot of historical and technical background on Her- the whole world and universe of Honor Harrington. Mm-hmm. Now... There was a lot of discussion at the beginning, and we've brought this up in and out, and gentlemen, feel free to hop in uh, on this. Do we go through the mainstream Honor Harrington books, or do we just read everything in the order that is published? And we decided to go with order published. Part of the reason why is, well, for, for example, what's about to happen in the next Honor Harrington book and what happened to Nimitz already while they were on board uh, the Teeps, we're going to get a, some of the stuff that we learn in some of this background here is going to make that a little more richer experience, a little more understanding experience. Uh, in the last book, in the beginning of the last book, we had some events, uh, that leveler rebellion that they talked about with with uh, McQueen, uh, or you know that event uh, that happened at the beginning. It's going to come up and be important going forward uh, in the next book. There's a short story that actually gives you a lot of all that background. So not all of the short stories is this true for, but there's enough of them. It's get them all in order, and it's a much more consistent, a little more richer experience. And just in my own opinion, and if we ever get David Weber on here, hopefully he'll answer this, because I want to ask him about how he moves things through the short stories uh, and the different releases. It's almost like he's establishing pacing in the whole saga with some of his release orders. Mm-hmm. That That's just my opinion based on having read everything in order in the past and then 
my first first reads, there's a lot of things that I skipped. So it's kind of makes it a little different experience. Yeah. And I will anyway. test I will testify to what you said, uh, Raul, is uh I've already started reading Echoes of Honor and uh already there are things from this book. I'm only about a quarter of the way through it. Uh there are things mm-hmm. in this book that we're talking about tonight that are relevant. Uh you know, it yeah. and so uh, I can see why we're doing this order. They may not be absolutely necessary, but they really contribute a lot yes. to the the story overall. And in some cases, they are necessary because all of a sudden it's like someone's showing up and where the heck did this person come from? When the heck did this happen? So that's the that's the reason behind the decisions. Yeah, you re, you really want to take the entire honor versus one continuous saga, mm-hmm. and I've decided even the two prequels that's true as well. And I'm not going to say anything. Well, we'll talk a little bit about the prequels with uh, the first short story, but the second prequel, the Manticore Ascendant, I I'm not going to say anything about except that the way it interweaves. It really kind of fits the pacing, and it's a really interesting contrast. Yeah. But that said, Jim, our first story is A Beautiful Friendship by David Weber. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to turn this over to you right. uh, to get okay. us started. So the overall title of the book that we're uh, looking at tonight is uh, called More Than Honor, and uh, it is Worlds of Honor book number one. Okay, now our format for tonight's show is going to be a little bit different than other shows where we're looking at an entire novel by itself. As uh, Raul pointed out, we've got four sections to this book. We're going to take each section by itself, do a synopsis. Uh, JP will let us know what he found out on things, and uh, we'll have our discussions and quotes and... uh, then we'll rate them and then move on to the next one. Yeah. And uh, we will rate them with a with a thumbs up or a thumbs down. We'll move on to the to the next book. And then we'll have an overall number rating for the entire collection. So, and uh, as Raul pointed out, A Beautiful Friendship is where we open up. Uh, the story is by David Weber. Tree Cat climbs quickly, has a fascination with the two-leg species that have been taking up residence on his home world of Sphinx. He especially takes an interest in their greenhouses, where the two legs grow the cluster stalk plants they find irresistible. He studies humans to learn more about their ways. Eleven-year-old Stephanie Harrington is bored out of her mind, enduring the winter on Sphinx. Her dad, Richard, has forbidden her from exploring the surroundings of their new home world but she is determined to learn who or what is raiding the celery from greenhouses and gardens. While watching the greenhouse near her home, Stephanie sees climbs quickly come out of the building. Suddenly, they become bonded after a moment of psychic connection. Climbs quickly is sanctioned by the leaders of his clan for letting a human see him and is forbidden from having any further contact with them. After lying to her parents about going to hang gliding lessons, Stephanie strikes out on her own to locate climbs quickly. She encounters a thunderstorm, causing her to crash land in the trees. She is severely injured 
and her equipment is destroyed or lost. Climbs quickly, finds her, and helps her as best as he can as he detects a hexapuma near their location. Climbs quickly, realizes the dangerous hexapuma is about to attack, and through his sister, sings truly, he calls the clan. But the animal attacks before the clan arrives, and he gets severely injured fighting off the attack. Despite her own dismal condition, Stephanie also attacks in an attempt to save the tree cat. The clan arrives just as a cat is about to finish Stephanie off and tears it to shreds. They stand guard to protect Stephanie and climbs quickly. Richard and his wife, Marjorie Harrington, realize that they have been duped by their daughter and head out to find her. In the meantime, the Tree Cat clan discusses the consequences of contact with humans. Sings truly convinces them it is time to reveal their presence to the humans and coexist. The Harringtons arrive to rescue their daughter, and Richard, realizing his daughter is enamored with climbs quickly, agrees to treat the animal as best he can. Well, there it is. There it is. Yep. And there's five hours uh, of correction though, Jim. Five hours of editing to start right out. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the important correction here is duped by her daughter they were duped by their daughter again again (laughs) okay she's a little on the precocious side yeah so jp what what kind of things have you found just a few what i'm gonna do is mention a couple things about the anthology and then i'm gonna mention a couple things about this story just so that we uh get treatment on both of those. So More Than Honor is the first of 11 Honorverse anthologies. I didn't understand or Mm -hmm. realize, I guess, how many there were until I went and did this homework. It's a 371-page book and was published in January 1998. The anthology was written by three authors, as was mentioned, containing four sections, the three stories, first of which we're talking about now, and then the fourth is... uh, an essay or a technical essay that explains a bunch of stuff about the sociological, governmental, scientific a- aspects of the honorverse. The three stories are A Beautiful Friendship. I'm going to say the authors, even though we we mentioned it before, but now we're jumping in here. A Beautiful Friendship by I David don't, Weber. I didn't read grand... your notes in advance. What's that? I said I didn't read your notes in advance, so I didn't know <laughs> oh, what, okay. you were, what you had already. Um, the second story, A Grand Tour by David Drake, and then the third story, A Whiff of Grape Shot, by S.M. Sterling. The technical essay comes last and was written by David Weber. Uh, As we've mentioned in the podcast, uh, we deviated from the core novels in this first anthology based on uh, a series of recommendations, and I'll just say the general understanding of what may or may not be preferred by the author. Uh, And as you guys have already spoken about and i concur with it uh, there's there's definitely obvious added value in doing it this way a beautiful friendship which we're talking about now introduces us to stephanie harrington and her parents we learn of stephanie in the very first honor harrington novel on basilisk station Um, but we don't really know much about her it's it is literally a brief mentioning the story gives us a significant dose of the background of Honor's very distant relative. Generally, we also see a glimpse into early life on Sphinx. Specifically, we learn the circumstances around the very first tree cat 
adoption of a human. And I put those words in that order on purpose. The tree cat adopts Mm -hmm. the human. Most interesting, this story is written in part from the perspective of the tree cats who view themselves as the people or as people. They talk about themselves in that way. And the humans are the unknown or recently discovered sentient species to be studied and at least for a season to be wary of. But as you heard in the summary, we're Mm -hmm. getting to the point where the tree cats acknowledge they may need to have this first contact, we'll call it. So that's the background on the anthology and on this story. Well, it was really interesting, especially in that last point that you made, JP. Uh Uh, there, there, There was discussion, there was question on the tree cats part are human beings sentient at all because they're mind blind just like the dumb animals? Yes. They yes. can't talk. Yep. And we watched that debate, or I will call it a debate, right? That argument, that debate unfold among the the tree cats as they wrestle with what they're learning in, in this short story. It's kind of cool. And if I may, I'm going to add, because I'm sure someone will point it out to, to us uh, uh, in, in comments somewhere. This short story is the basis for one of the prequel series, uh, what's called what's, what is called the Star Kingdom series. Mm. Awesome. We'll, we'll actually get a lot of the story again, and it's going to be greatly, greatly expanded into a full-length novel and cover a lot of material before, a lot of additional material during, and a whole lot of material afterwards as well. That's good to know. Mm-hmm. So I apologize to, uh, for interrupting. But. Oh, no, that's good. Uh, if you want, I'll cover some of the themes about this before we get into the discussion. Yes, please. Certainly. Oh, okay. Um, so I tagged a couple themes coming out of this short story. First is colonization, specifically Sphinx. Friendship, the role of science in planetary exploration and settlement. Tree cats, uh, obviously, since it's a story focused on them. Um a sentient alien race from the human perspective. And this is really, as we've talked about in the summary, the realization by humans, Stephanie in particular, that not only are these creatures out there, but they're more than just creatures, wild animals running around on the planet. And then the tree cat human bonding or pairing, which we learn in the story is akin to and as powerful as something like marriage, but it is a different kind of relationship than that. Mm-hmm. And there may be more, uh, you guys, mm-hmm. as always, please throw in, but I, I kind of identified those as themes from, from the story. One thing, I, one thing I, I found was the, we saw a lot of things from the perspective of the tree cats and how they think and, and how they view things. Yeah. So I, I thought that was a real important element in this story. Uh, it gives us a lot of insight and I think will be very valuable in moving forward. It changes your perspective of tree cats, certainly. Mm-hmm. So that means JP's a hundred percent on board now. <laughs> well, <laughs> let's go ahead and get some. Let's go ahead and get some impressions first, and we'll corner him on that after. We <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. All right, so um, I enjoyed this story and appreciate learning more about Honor's homeworld and life on it. I still don't fully understand the bonding thing between the cats and humans, but then I realize it is a mystery that really, I guess, cannot be explained. It just happens. 
and I'm okay with that. Uh, I would have liked to know a little more about who the Harringtons in this story are and uh, more about where they are in uh, Honor's lineage. I didn't pick up on that if it was mentioned. Uh, But that's not important to this story, and a rundown in this story wouldn't be appropriate. Other than that, I found the story engaging and entertaining as well as revealing. I enjoyed the names of the cats. I'm going to take on a cat name myself. I think you guys should do the same. And mine is going to be, (laughs) my tree cat name is going to be sits on his ass and drinks coffee. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to vote you to be the tribal leader because that's the best name. Oh, yes. All right. (laughs) But as far as names are concerned, at some point, the cats get names from their chosen humans, such as Nimitz. So. It makes me wonder what Nimitz' true cat name is. Um, and and I, I didn't choose any Fans, quotes for do this not story. Write, do not write in and answer that question for him yet, okay? Uh, oh, heck. Just don't yeah. do it. Don't, don't, huh? Why? Does, is, do we find out, find that out? Oh, yes. Not oh. just yes, but hell yes. It doesn't oh, okay. involve sitting uh, on the third point of contact and drinking a hot beverage, does it? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Not quite, but <laughs> in fact, actually, Jim, most of your uh, most of the things that you're wondering about are going to get answered either fully or at least uh, to some degree as we continue through the series. Okay, well, that'll be fun to find out then. So, uh, yep, JP, your turn. All right, I found the tree cat culture interesting. I really enjoyed seeing the story unfold through their eyes, which, you know, we've talked about a little bit already, as well as the eyes of Stephanie and her parents, Richard and Marjorie. I also found the short story discussion or the uh, short discussion about the picket trees interesting. They made me think of aspen trees, which are beautiful, and from some folks' perspectives, giant weeds that will spread wildly through a shared root system. So when he was talking about how, how, these picket trees go, uh, aspen trees came to mind. The story flew by. I was immersed in it, uh, frankly, to be surprised when it ended. I forgot reading the story that it was a short story because it pulled me in that well. So suddenly it was over and I, you know, there was that just that half second or whatever of confusion, like, wait, that can't be the end. So it was good stuff. I've said it in past episodes, heard others say it. One of the interesting facets of the Honorverse is the absence of aliens. Uh, I think the tree cats prove this is false. It seems they're easily over an easily overlooked alien species. It hadn't really occurred to me until now, until reading this story. They're not humanoids, but they're clear, clearly an alien race. And so I, I stand corrected. Uh, unlike Jim... I think it might be best if I avoid taking on a cat name. You and me both. I'm just going to leave it there. And uh, no quotes for me from this story. Hey, I could make up names for you guys. If you want to name us as the as the um, tribal leader, who am I to say no? <laughs> oh, oh. Okay. Hey, keep in mind, tree cat names are given to them by the rest of the clan. Oh, well, I guess I'll have to figure that out. I, I promise not to choose walks across the carpet, stops, and licks his butt. I, <laughs> oh, 
Oh, I'll tell you what, that guy. Okay. He's not on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Could have a lot of fun with this. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead, Raul. Raul. All point. right. I think, th- yeah, this is a good point to move <laughs> on. All right. First of all, this story's pure Weber. It, it shows. Okay. Um, and as I've said already, uh, this story becomes the foundation of a larger series. And as we mentioned with, as I mentioned with Jim, it's not an absolutely must read essential, but you will be missing a lot without the short story. Uh, not only are you missing a fantastic story in the universe itself, but the background and what you learn about tree cats and things like the questions Jim was asking, that becomes part of the saga as it progresses forward. So keep that in mind, folks. Um, this story for me really, I mean, really fleshes out a lot of the background on tree cats. We we're going to be seeing them growing more and more important, uh, in the books as, as we go along and their significance is just simply going to continue. It's going to help us understand the dynamic between honor and Nimitz, uh, going forward. And that's going to be important. We already knew tree cats were more intelligent than what we've seen written about them. I mean, we, we kind of get that feeling from the outset. E- even Honor mentions that she suspects they're, more, they're smarter than they, even she realizes. Well, here in this book, we just see how intelligent they really are. Short of it is they may not be as technologically advanced. And of course, with their telepathy, they don't have that drive to be necessarily as advanced. But on an intellectual basis, they're either right there with us or just slightly behind. They've got a rich culture. They've got a com- complex society. They're tool makers. And it's interesting, the entire, as a race, you know, all of the clans together, they decide to hide how, in their word, clever they are from the humans. It's like, yeah, we're going to reveal themselves, but we're not going to let them, we're not going to let humans, we're not going to let the two legs know how smart the people are, which I thought, it's like, you know, that's really putting the shoe on the other foot where first (laughs) contact is, isn't it? We get some deep lore background into Honor's family history, you know, and we've already been exposed to some of that. We had the mention of Celery. We've had the mention of uh, Stephanie Harrington, just only just as her ancestor way back when. So here here we get uh, some of that uh, stuff, uh, being detailed. I do have a quote uh, that I'm going to give. It's a little bit uh, longish, but yet de- yet deciding the thing aimed his way wasn't a weapon, didn't tell him what it was. This was when she first discovered him. Those thoughts flashed through his brain in a heartbeat, and then without really thinking about it, he reached out to the two legs mind glow in an effort to judge its intentions. He was totally unprepared for the consequences. It was as if he looked straight into the sun, expecting to see only the glow of a single torch, and his eyes flared wide and his ears flattened instantly as the intensity of the two legs' emotions rolled over him. The glow was far brighter than before, and he wondered distantly if this, that was simply because he was closer and concentrating upon it, or if the cluster stalk he'd sampled might have had something to do with it. But it didn't really matter. What mattered was the excitement and eagerness and wonder that blazed so brightly in the two legs' mind. It was the first time any of the people had ever come face-to-face with a two-leg, and nothing could have prepared Climes quickly for the sheer delight with which Stephanie Harrington saw the marvelous six-limbed creature crouched in the ventilation louver 
with the woven net of purloined celery slung over its back. The representatives of two intelligent species, one of which had never even suspected the other's existence, stared at one another in the middle of the howling thunderstorm. First, con- that's literally you know first contact, uh, the first adoption bond. I mean that that really becomes a core piece of the the saga itself. And I will say this, and I'm going to go along with you, JP, as, as far as how good the book pulled you in. Think about this. We know how this story has to end. This is Honor's ancestor. We've got the hints that she lived a really good long life. We know that Tree Cat Bond is going to be successful. And even with that, we're sitting the here on the edge of our seats when she's they're facing the Hexapuma with uh, Laughs Brightly. And the aftermath leaves you, you know, in, in fear and almost in tears. It's like, oh my God, is everyone going to be okay? That's just good writing. When you already know the the ending and you know, and you go through those kinds of things. Yeah, I would say I, so. I, in the middle of this story, I forgot that I knew the ending. I was, yeah. I was in the story. Yep. And that, that's just brilliant writing. You mentioned the adoption bond too. It was neat because I had, I had mentioned that as well. We, that initial contact, nobody, including either character seems to fully understand this because it was uh-uh. the first time outside of the tree cat culture there was a bond made with something else but later when we learned how significant or how deep that bond is related kind of said I related it to the the same strength or power as marriage but it's the tree cats that show us that not stephanie yep the tree cats amongst themselves realize how powerful that bond was and they're still trying to wrestle with how it's possible and what does it mean cool stuff yeah and like jim said so much of this is written from the tree cat perspective mm-hmm. so where do we go from here guys ratings? Yep. ratings are up next yeah uh the rating system we're using for the individual segments in the book are either a thumbs up a thumbs down or neutral and uh so i'll start out uh i gave this story a thumbs up very easily i also gave it a thumbs up and since I have two hands, I'm giving it two thumbs up. So there. <laughs> okay. Well, so there. Yep. All right. Our next story is A Grand Tour by David Drake. The 14th Earl of Great Gap. Does everybody in this freaking in these freaking books have titles? <laughs> okay. No, 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 don't answer that. No. Okay. okay. This is one of my grumps of the book, by the way. This story. Oh. Not the book, but this story. Uh. The 14th Earl of Great Gap, Sir Harkon Nestler, goes to the planet Hope with his university tutor and gambling coach, Edith Mincio. While there, he learns of the destruction of the HMS Lim- uh, Imperatus, I, I can't pronounce that, that's some French, uh, by the Havenite cruiser Rienzi. Nestler plots and eventually gains control of the light cruiser. Colonel Arabi, after uh, crewing it with survivors of the Manticorn cruiser and some uh, Melungeon workers, uh, Nestor takes command and renames the ship the HMS Ajax. Thank goodness I can pronounce that. Owing to the neglect of its previous owners, the Ajax is nowhere near fit for battle. 
but Nestler and his crews managed to bluff Rienzi's crew into mutiny, abandoning and scuttling the ship. There it is. Yep. Yep. Now, I, for the I, background, oh, I, ahead, I, I was just going to say, now, these synopsises I wrote strictly, these are my points of view, uh, uh-huh. and if if they're not right or something, that that's completely my fault. And part of the reason it's so short is because I wasn't too impressed. So, all right, go ahead, JP. <laughs> okay, I yeah, I think what you do, what you just descri- said uh, describes a great deal of the. Fandom. Okay, all right. So David Drake is also known for writing uh, military science fiction, specifically the Royal Cinnabar Navy or RCN series, which contains twelve novels. So he's L- Lieutenant. Lieutenant Leary? Yes. Yep. Similar to Honor, Harrington, the, his his main character, the series focuses on, um, it's actually Daniel. You noticed that, yeah, huh? A Navy, a Navy lieutenant, Daniel Leary, um, unless I got his first name wrong, but it's Lieutenant Leary for sure. Uh, I don't believe this series has an overall relationship to the Honorverse. However, David Drake reportedly considers his story in this book, More Than Honor, a conceptual antecedent to the first novel in his series. So that 12-novel series he wrote, the foundation or a part of a foundation is laid here in this short story that he wrote for uh, for the Honorverse. He's also the creator of uh-huh. the alien Alphane race found in this story. And as far as I could find, the Grand Tour is his only contribution to the Honorverse. Yeah, I, I believe that's correct. Mm. That's, so. the, uh, that's the background, and I'll jump right into the themes. Uh, some of these are actually, most of these are not unique to this story. So politics, including, by the way, a brief, a small mention, a small dose of the Havenite Dole Fleet. Colonization, commerce, raiding by navies comes up in here, and we've seen some of that going on in, in the novels that we've read. Science, um, and particularly archaeology, surfaces here as a scientific anchor point for what's going on in the story. And then, like the tree cats, we have reference to more aliens, these alphanes that I mentioned, described as in the story as a pre-human space-faring race. And we learn in the story they have a very unique use of technology and and how we get that glimpse is through what uh, the characters in the story believe are actually Alphaean books in the form of, essentially in the form of crystals. So those are the th- themes, not the books in that last point, but the fact that there are, here's another kind of alien mentioned inside the greater Honorverse. And I say inside the Honorverse because this is an anthology story in the Honorverse. And that'll mm-hmm. get us to some impressions, discussions, and what have you. Yeah, I don't have any lead-up comments uh, for this one, so I am going to send it straight on to you. Okay. Uh, as hard as I tried, I could not get into this story. There was a lot of setup before the meat of the story was revealed in the last several pages. Unfortunately, I had a hard time paying attention and fell asleep several times while trying to read it. Uh, it was actually kind of a chore to get through. Uh, it felt like a uh, little more than an extensive collection of words. I certainly don't have any quotes. JP? Yeah. 
Uh, if I had known you were going to say that, I would have just said ditto. <laughs> no. <laughs> At, uh, <clears throat> well, so here, here's, here it is. Uh, I didn't like this story either. It wasn't horrible, but it was boring. Or I'm going to say, I, I also found it boring. It seemed to be a mishmash of semi-related ideas. Uh, ultimately, I kept waiting for it to end, which, you know, I... I'll sort of apologize to the author, but I I just didn't get it. And it seemed to take way too long uh, to get to that end. For me, it uh, it's probably unfortunate that it followed a beautiful friendship that I just said, talking about that. I got lost in that story. I got sucked in. And then this was what followed it. And it, it that, may, that may be unfair in some context that this followed that, but it did. Uh, there were some interesting aspects or elements to the story, but it didn't add anything for me to my appreciation of the Honorverse, at least so far. I, I am I am open to realizing later that there there might be some nuggets in here that are that, that truly become uh, important in the grander storyline. Uh, one specific I was I was put off, and I'm going to say once again we talked about the first time. I, this sort of silliness happens again here. Uh, it was put off by a scene that had gunplay in it that to me was just flat out unrealistic. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, two, two difficult mm. things about the part of the story that involved that scene. And I'll describe them first. Someone picks up a stone small enough that the author calls it a pebble and threw and this person threw it over 40 meters. That's 131 feet. I find it hard to believe something described as a pebble has enough mass or weight to chuck it that far, even if the person throwing it was strong. Uh, Second, it would have actually flown more than 40 meters, but what stopped it was a shot. 40 meters is over 120 feet. Yes. Yeah, I said 131. So um, Yeah. uh, What stopped it was a shot that it was shot out of the air with a pistol um, from where the pebble was thrown, so not close to where it was when it was shot out of the air. Uh, This took me out of an already boring story when the author claimed someone shot a hand-thrown pebble that was flying through the air, moving away from the gunman when it was 40 meters away. I just, I, I was mentally done at that point. Um, And I, and thinking back on it, I have no idea why that even was relevant to the point of the story, but it was in there for some reason. Uh, the positive and interesting element of the story, because I don't want to be you know all negative about it, were the Alphanes. As I mentioned in, uh, above, in the context of the tree cats, here's another alien race that appeared to exist or had existed within the Honorverse. I'm okay with that, um, but uh, on the record, I stand corrected a second time because I know I have said my understanding of the Honorverse was it didn't contain any aliens. I'd actually like to know more about that race. So, so there is that, but it didn't help. This story didn't help me with the Honorverse. And related to what I did find positive about the story, I do have a very short quote, and it goes like this. No one knew what the Alphanes had looked like. Even the name was one coined by Calprades because he believed they were the first star traveling race in the Milky Way galaxy. That to me is interesting. And I, so like I said, I, I, I would love to know more about these, these people. Um, but the story ended when it ended and in the grand scheme, like you, Jim, I was kind of glad when I hit the, hit the stop on it. So yeah, there you have it, Raul over to you, my friend. Uh, JP, 
if you if you want to learn more about the Alphanes, uh, if, I, if I remember, if I I believe you should be able to find that out if you go and read the uh, Lieutenant Leary books. Yeah, that that might happen, right. but but it'll be after. So mm-hmm. after this. So in contrast to what I said before, this story is not by a Weber, and it shows. And to be uh, to be honest, except for a couple of buzzwords, uh, the, the story really doesn't have any relation to the honorverse at all. I mean, it's generic science fiction story that could be pretty much anywhere. I, I've enjoyed David Drake. I mean, going way back to Hammer Slammers in the 80s, that was my first military sci-fi. This just, I didn't feel like it was his best work. It kind of felt like he was using this story as a treatment piece to sort of develop his own ideas, you know? Not, oh, wait. Never mind. Okay, moving on. Uh, JP, uh, you'll appreciate this one. Um, I've watched a lot of Jerry Muselik videos. Yep. I've subs- I subscribed to Kristen Joy Weiss's feed and watched her shoot the cookie off part off of an Oreo at, I forgot what, 50 meters with a 22 long rifle. Yeah. Our chief range safety officer was the head of the competitive pistol shooting team for Winchester. You know, Winchester ammo is made here uh, near Edwardsville. I've seen people with precision shooting in the natural eye. When I read the gunplay here, the only thing I can ask is, has Drake ever actually fired a handgun? Honor, as good as she is, couldn't have, I mean, could not have done a shot like that. And we know we've seen what she can do with uh, right. with uh, God's uh, own round. She's she's pretty deadly. So, yeah, and it sticks out, JP. I can tell you right now, there was a lot of there was a lot of effort, uh, a lot of text narrative built around this. Yeah, there was. So it may you, it, you know he, he, it it sticks out because the author draws attention to it. This story does have an important piece of relevance to the universe, though. This is the first appearance and description of the Solarian uh, League's foreign office's uh, gendarmes. I'd always wondered why did they call them that. Well, this book is where they come from. And here's the quote. The gendarmes were supposed to uphold league regulations on the less developed worlds, which had a liaison officer instead of a league high commissioner. Every contact with gendarmes during this tour had convinced Mincio that the service attracted people who did little for the reputation of the League or for the law or for law and order more generally. Hmm. The frontier yeah. office, the gendarmerie, the level of corruption from the verge, uh, that's all going to be a very, very critical part in the second half of the saga. And this is the first appearance of the organization and it kind of sets the tone for what they are mm. so there <laughs> is a significance Good. to it if i didn't take the time to point this out uh i would be surprised if you remember it when we get there <laughs> so my willingness to wait is already rewarded because you've let me know that there is a nugget in here we're gonna we're gonna get more yep. of there, there is a nugget and i managed to keep a spoiler free, yeah. so you guys don't have to come after all right so I'm giving this story a thumbs down. I'm also giving it a thumbs down. Definitely, yeah, it's a thumbs down. Okay, move on to the next story, A Whiff of Grape Shot by S.M. Sterling. 
As the Committee of Public Safety gathers to discuss business, explosions and sounds of an uprising reach their meeting chambers. It isn't long before there are disruptions to communication, and it appears there is a major uprising in the uh, city of Nouveau, Paris. Chaos soon breaks out, and the security forces in the city are unable to deal with the situation. Esther McQueen boards her flagship and deals with the situation. Many lives are lost as the attack is put down. McQueen is not a sympathizer of the committee and has an agenda of her own. She is aware of the threat of the levelers, the faction responsible for the attack. Her efficiency in putting down the uprising causes Pierre some trepidation over the power McQueen can wield and the position of power he has given her. There it is. Yes. Our background information for this, uh, Sterling is also a science fiction and fantasy author, contributed uh-huh. a whiff of grape shot to this anthology. He is a prolific author with a number of published series under his belt, as with David Drake. Uh, as far as I could find out or tell, this story, A Whiff of Grape Shot, appears to be his only contribution to the honorverse. Um, there is an author's note at the beginning of this story, and it says this, Readers may be amused to learn that both the climax of this story and the archaeological methods described therein are closely modeled on real events which took place in the eastern Mediterranean in 1795. Um, end of the quote. While not in the Eastern Med on 5 October 1795, Napoleon, uh, of you know fame in France and around the world, put down a rebellion against the National Convention in Paris. So there is a direct correlation there. Napoleon was a general at the time, but was not in command of a military unit. His actions were noteworthy when he and his fellow generals seized the arms. Um, it was a lot of cannons of the rebels that were in Paris and defeated them by turning their own guns against them, effectively ending the French Revolution. So uh, I'm a little bit at a loss to understand the Eastern Mediterranean connection, but regardless of why that was there, and maybe I was just blind to whatever that was, Mm -hmm. um, there is, as we have seen with the Weber novels, there was a direct link to to real history here in terms of what we're Uh watching. McQueen do and her relationship relative to Pierre and the council that was convened in, in Nouveau Paris. Mm -hmm. So there's that pretty cool stuff. Um, themes in this one dime, which we've mentioned before is a construct for viewing foreign policy and international relations. The focus in this story is on the politics, um, which I'll lump under the diplomatic piece and the military and particularly what's highlighted in here to me was the folly of an authoritarian government, some of the problems that it ends up facing Uh um, based on its own existence. Uh, The profession of arms is a theme here and what it means when a military isn't professional in the sense that we use it today. Uh, Piracy also shows up, which I thought was kind of cool and Therefore, the emergence of space navies, um, as we are now very familiar with them in the honorverse, but even just in the what I'll call the local sense, right? The the planetary sense that you have, or system sense, you have space navies emerging to counter piracy, and that sort of links the story into earlier 
at least an earlier novel, but really the uh-huh. the story, the universe so far. So that's those are the special notes, the um, the themes. Sorry, not notes, but the themes that I pulled out of the story. How about all right? What am I missing? And if nothing, over to the impressions and discussions and quotes. Okay, Jim, do you want to go ahead and start us? All right. Um, I love this very short story. Uh, it got right to the point and showed how the committee and Pierre in particular fear those who think, uh, and particularly think like Esther McQueen. Uh, I like the pacing of the story and how it got directly to the point. It is, uh, neat how it dovetails into the main saga, uh, kind of a, a peek behind the scenes of what's going on, uh, there. And, um, Jim, yeah, I gotta tell you. You just nailed the important takeaways of this story oh, with thanks. respect to the Universe Saga. <laughs> you, you you nailed it. Yeah, anyway, anyway, I was going to say also about the Mexican Revolution that um, I don't remember exactly the way it went, but there was, uh, I think it was Pancho Villa, he became the ruler, and he and a gentleman named Zapata was going to step in and, and overthrow him. And, uh, Pancho Villa said, I don't like him because he thinks mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. referring to Zapata. And so I, that's kind of a correlation to history that, um, I took on now. If my history is faulty, I claim senility. So <laughs> my grandmother that, well, this, this is, it, it, that was what, uh, turn of the century, I guess, 1900s. Yeah. Jim was in grade school. Yeah, my grandmother. Yeah, <laughs> my grandmother lost. <laughs> my grandmother lost her village uh, to Zapata. Actually, uh, um, the, he even burned down the church. Her the church her birth records. She didn't know her actual birth date. Yeah, uh, for certain because and she couldn't certainly couldn't document it because uh, the records were destroyed. You know, those records were all kept in the church with the baptismal yeah. records, right? Yeah. Anyway, that's that's just a story that my dad told me when I was younger. Um, yep. How rulers have a tendency to fear those who think. <laughs> okay, you're gonna go. I maybe the next book or the main series book after that, you're gonna come in and you, you're gonna think back to what you said. Okay. And you're gonna think, damn, I'm clever. <laughs> <laughs> because you were really. Well, thanks. <laughs> I'll turn this over to JP now. This is probably my favorite story in the anthology, which doesn't diminish how much I liked Weber's story, but I really like this one. Of the two stories uh, that weren't penned by Weber, this one was the most tightly coupled to the Honorverse, and so I think we're all in agreement on that since it's come up several different ways. You know, like I talked about wanting to know more about the Althanes. In this story, I really wanted to learn more right now about the Leveler's and their role in Haven's misconduct. And I I know from prior discussions that we're going to get more of that, so that makes me happy. Uh, I like how the story drove home the theme that was present in the recent novels that we've already read and reviewed. A professional military is probably the only thing able to stop the unlawful seizure of power, and so historically there's often a purge of the most competent senior officers and enlisted troops after a coup. That comes with a cost, though, when the new government then needs the military to perform like a credible and capable fighting force. 
because they've gotten rid of the thinkers to use the language we've kind of been using so far. Um, <laughs> that's when they often will realize that it um, it might be a useful tool against their own population. The military, in some ways, becomes a state police force or a thing that's not police or military in the professional sense, but it can't or it won't fight well when it's up against another credible military force. And then I had a I had a quote, a couple quotes actually from this one. Uh, the first quote is reflecting on the problem of purging the military after a coup, and it goes like this. A relatively junior officer spoke. Citizen Admiral, there's the entire capital fleet in orbit here. Several marine brigades in transit. Hell, there's the equivalent of a division in the marine parties on the ship alone. What's stopping them from putting this lunacy down? McQueen cleared her throat and looked at Commissioner Fontaine. He nodded bleakly. We've shot everyone in the Navy who even looked like they might intervene in politics. The whole revolt against the legislaturalists had started with an action that made the Navy appear to be launching the coup. And as we can see, they're now wringing their hands because they've got a problem that they don't have a military to address. Uh, the second quote goes like this, and it deals with the depravity of the levelers as compared to uh, our, our guy... Rob S. Pierre. So here we go. In fact, due to coincidence, I am probably the only ranking officer who has a real idea of what's happening. Now I will say nothing critical of the committee. Heads nodded unconsciously. Only a complete idiot would do that. Let me put it hypothetically then. Even someone who didn't approve of the committee's heroic efforts to save the People's Republic would be wise to come to its aid at this juncture on the basis of the old principle that one should always consider the alternative. Citizen Commissioner, perhaps you could fill us in on the background of LaBeouf's levelers. Fontaine did. The calm control of his voice and the dispassionate terms he used made the description all the more effective. The fall of the legislaturalists had taken the cork out of the bottle and some extremely odd ideological scum had floated to the surface. McQueen nodded thanks when he finished, noting the look of horror on the faces of the officers around the plotting tank. What LaBeouf had in mind for the People's Republic made Rob S. Pierre look like a humanitarian. <laughs> and that gave me goosebumps when I read it. Uh-huh. I don't mean uh-huh. read it right this second, but when I came when that happened in the book, it I had, a, I had a pause. Like, man, this is this is bad. Yeah. So uh, I knew you would like this story. Yeah, this was mm-hmm. a good one. So how about Raul? Let's uh, let's hear your take on this one. Okay. Uh, well, I'm not going to bother with a quote because you just used my quote. <laughs> Dang it. Um, but that that said, now, okay, this story by S. M. Sterling, in contrast to the last story, it really does catch the feel of the universe. For those who don't know, Sterling has got a lot of experience writing. And I mean, yeah, he's written a lot of his own material, original material, but he's a lot got a lot of experience writing into other people's, other authors' universes, getting into their mind and portraying them correctly. And it shows. Like I said at the beginning, he's he wrote one of the Babylon Five novels, and of the non-canonical standalones, it's frankly. One of the better ones. That was the mystery yeah. uh, story, the murder mystery. Mm-hmm. 
I got to be careful what I say. Okay, the, the the story really develops. We've heard mention of Aster McQueen. We, we've she was the one who handed Whitehaven his hand and his butt <laughs> back on Hancock. Mm-hmm. Yep. We know she's had. You know, we we saw some more of her at the beginning of in in, in enemy hands. And she's going to have a lot of impact in the stories that come along. It's a great story. He really does a good job capturing Weber. I, I can think uh, of the authors that are invited to write into, into it. I think there's probably one more, only one other that does as good of a job of, as that. And I'm not going to bring it up now. The background's relevant to the main story. Yeah, I, I can't say too much more. I Just like uh, A Beautiful Friendship, I consider this one e- essential reading. It's not an absolute positive have-to-have, but I'm telling you, you are missing something important in the saga if you don't read this uh, short story. <sighs> um, actually, I, you know, I, I've got a question here. I, th- if, I, I would love to know. Did... David Weber take McQueen's personality from S.M. Sterling, or did Sterling get direction on her personality and the story from David Weber? That sounds like a question you could ask the author. Yeah. Yeah. It, it integrates, the, this story fits, is so, it so well captures the honorverse, and it fits in with the flow so well. I can't mm-hmm. tell. Yeah, now that you mentioned I mean, it, I see that. It, it'll it'll become even more it'll become even much more apparent in the next book or yeah. two. So that that tells me that or that should tell anyone reading it that the author did a really good job and he succeeded in what he was trying to do. Yeah. And Raul, is that a the question about the character of McQueen only or yes. or everything in this story? Uh McQueen McQueen especially. Yeah. Yeah, because I would expect there was an outline, a story Bible or something for Sterling to use, but I I think you're right. He nailed Yeah, oh he's nailed McQueen's David character. Weber has like a eighty thousand word uh honorverse Bible that he put together before he even wrote in Basilisk Station, as I mm. understand it. It's something that uh he, he swears will never see the light of day. Mm. I don't know if I would even really want to see it in all honesty. Yeah. Though. I don't, I, that would, for me, that would ruin, I, I wouldn't, if he ever published it, I would not be able to resist buying it, but I have a bad feeling it would ruin something for it's me. It's like when you go to the restaurant and it's the best meal ever, and you'd love to go see how they made the magic work, and at the same time, you don't really want to see it, you just, you just want to enjoy the meal. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. don't watch how they make sausage if you like sausage. <laughs> right. Okay, so... Anyway, as ratings. far as ratings are concerned, I gave this one a thumbs up. And I give it a thumbs up. I as well. Definitely a thumbs All up. All right. So far, we're unanimous on our ratings. Uh, that's boring. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So. I gave Beautiful Friendship two thumbs up. So there. Oh, well. Okay. <laughs> the uh, I don't know what to say about the redundancy, but we'll just continue right along here. Uh, the Universe of Honor Harrington uh, is the name of the next story by David Weber. This one is a brief description of some of the aspects of the things in the Honorverse. Some of the discussion includes the physics and means of travel between systems. There's also a discussion of the formation of the Manticoran government 
And uh, it is not a story as much as it is a guide to deeper understanding of the settings. So that there it is. All right, some background. Um, David Weber wrote it, and that may be all that I really need to say, right? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I believe there's at least one other installment like this somewhere in another anthology. I sure hope so, because this was pretty cool. Uh, the information filled in gaps, illuminated other materials, satisfied the geek in me. Um, I know we're verging almost away from background information and into my take on it, but um, it, you know, even if I thought it was not a great thing to read, it filled in gaps, it illuminated other materials, satisfied the geek in me to some extent. I love that the content covered so much military uh, of the military technology as well as political and economic stuff. So it really was a nice round dose of the behind the scenes universe. Uh, I caught myself thinking of this as a technical manual, but it it is not. It's really much more than that. And then the uh, themes that emerged here, not story, but in in uh, you know an explanatory essay, colonization again, the diplomacy or politics and the economic parts of the dime model, and again particularly. The folly of an authoritarian, or he gets more specific in here and describes what we would call a Marxist or a communist government. Um, Once again, I see the influences of the Cold War on Weber and what he's writing. Um, He's a product of his times, no doubt. And uh, while we've been talking about the French Revolution and facets of that, aspects of that, from the very beginning of our podcast the whole podcast, um, there are clear elements of the Soviet Union in the overarching universe, uh, honor verse as well. Uh, we're given quite a bit of depth with what we find so far, anyway, in this part of the anthology. Commerce and freedom and navigation are a theme, and therefore the role of navies and what they do to maintain open seas and free commerce and such. And then, again heavy-duty science and technology as we get David's explanation on some of the, the cool stuff that makes the universe go. Warshawski sales and just stuff like that. It was it was good. So um, those are the themes. Jim, how about your impression? Tell us your thoughts on exposition now, Jim. Hey, hey, hey. All right. I can hear it now. <laughs> Listeners out there, here comes Jim with more <laughs> complaining about having too much Murray the Explainer included with the story. Well, my friends, I am happy to disappoint you. As a matter of fact, I enjoyed this being included in the book and will not complain because it is what it was intended to be, a sharing of information and and not a story. I found it interesting and informative, and uh, I do have a better understanding of the physics of travel uh, and the development of it. Uh, None of what was in this section was uh, necessary to the enjoyment of the story. Uh, And I had, uh, or I mean, the enjoyment of the Honor Harrington saga. And I had the feeling it was more like an extensive, well-written notebook describing the settings used in the book. Uh, More or less an author's notebook that he shared with us. So uh, that's kind of what I thought. Uh, J.P., well, I said it already. I said it again. This was cool. Uh, it everything in here added real depth to the story, 
dude, I'll just, I'll go out on a limb and say that we're also committed to at this point, you know, science fiction, right? There's, there's a lot of science in it. In this case, heavy science in the science fiction, uh, Weber giving us this stuff makes it is going to make it easier. I believe when we come across the fiction, and I don't mean just, uh, the fictionalized recounts of historical events, because that's happening a lot. But, um, you know, it, it is so easy to relatively easy to suspend your disbelief when a foundation of believable stuff is in place. And I don't know if that was Weber's intent in releasing this content in this anthology at this time. But, you know, I'll just say it up front. This is the kind of thing that makes makes it very easy for me as a reader later to embrace the things that are the fiction and not the science. So I, I applaud him for that. This, this was awesome. And I do have, uh, I do have some, some quotes for us here. All right. This one has to do with the political and economic history of Haven who for me, by the way, are becoming the people I love to hate, but, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, so here we Don't go. Worry, they'll eventually become the people you hate to love. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> I saw, Hey, quick aside. Um, I saw an interview with David Weber, and he was wearing a shirt, a you know, a People's Republic, a Haven shirt. And uh, I, I can't remember if somebody asked him about it or if he just proactively commented on it. But he said, "I love all my children, even the bad ones," or something like that. It was awesome. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah. So here's this. Uh, by by 1475, the Haven economy and the government had proven themselves extremely efficient and effective. Politically, Haven was a representative democracy with a strong and politically active middle class, and its economic policy enshrined the principles of liberal capitalism with minimal government interference. Coupled with the jumpstart provided by the colony's highly favorable initial circumstances, this combination of market efficiency and flexible government created a planetary standard of living at least as high as most of the Solarian League member worlds, and it became the envy of the pattern, uh, or sorry, the envy and the pattern for every other world in the quadrant. For the next two centuries, Haven continued to fulfill its promise. Uh, rising to a system population of almost 7 billion and becoming a sort of interstellar Athens. The Haven Quadrant, although composed of independent worlds and star systems, rivaled the Solarian League for economic power, and it remained a vibrant and expansive entity, unlike the essentially satisfied and content League. Although the Quadrant contained no wormhole junctions, it had access to the Manticore Junction and later to the uh, Erewhon Junction, and thence to the League, and there was every reason to believe that its expansion and prosperity would continue. It did not. Precise identification of a specific event which caused the change within the Quadrant is impossible, but in general terms, it might be called overachievement. And then uh, the other quote mm-hmm. ties into this, that setup, I guess, about the Haven's prosperity not continuing. So here we have now the explanation of the downfall of Haven. I'll add this too. It's, it is an explanation of the fact that, and this is my take on it, this is not the, not the quote, 
an explanation of the fact that good in- good intentions don't always equal good policy or, or result in good outcomes. So I'm I'm yep. I'm attributing I'm crediting Haven with good intentions uh, genuinely, but what we're going to see come uh-huh. from that is not good. And here's the and quote. we all know we all know what good intentions leads to. <laughs> yes, the quote. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what, what those might pave. So uh, here we go. Uh, out of out of this essay, the Republic thus began to experiment cautiously at first with assistance and welfare programs to increase the opportunities of its less advantaged citizens. Unfortunately, what began as an experiment gradually became something else. Transfer payments became increasingly important for the maintenance of the industrial poor, requiring greater levies on the productive elements of society. Marginal industrial operations were shored up by protective tariffs, government loans, and outright grants to encourage full employment, which both undercut the overall efficiency and productivity of the industrial base and encouraged inflation. Inflation further worsened the condition of the poor, requiring still higher transfer payments, payments which were soon adjusted for inflation on a mandated basis. And, as the network of assistance proliferated, it, be, uh, it came to be seen as a fundamental right of those receiving the aid. By 1680 PD, Haven had issued its famous Economic Bill of Rights, declaring that all of its citizens had an unalienable right to a relative standard of living to be defined and adjusted as inflation required by statute by the legislature. In the process, the government had initiated an an unending spiral of inflation, higher transfer payments, and increasing deficit spending. Moreover, it had, quite unintentionally, at least at first, undermined the fundamental strength of its own democracy, the middle class. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously a lot there uh, shared not not to create um, political or economic policy This uh, is political debate, history. You know, but it's political history. Um, and uh, if nothing else, I'll say this, as somebody who is schooled in this stuff, uh, it, if nothing else, this loudly communicates the fact that societies and governments are very, very rarely simple. Uh, they are immense and complex, even the best of them. And well-intentioned solutions, regardless of politics, when they're employed as a simple answer to a problem, usually result in, in a mess. And this is an example of that. Again, that is not political commentary. It's mm-hmm. it's the picture that Weber is painting um, using economics and showing the downturn. Uh, well, what I'll say is the creation of of the haven that that at least for the moment I love to hate. Right. So um, <laughs> yeah, you know he he is not being simplistic in the universe he's created. I've mentioned that before in a totally different context, and obviously with this essay. He's still not being simplistic about this. He is making this as amazingly messy as the real world is. And mm-hmm. this is the kind of stuff that is, has made me fall in love with this story. This whole story, not this essay. Yep. So, Raul, enough from me. Over to you. Yeah. 
and I'm going to just follow on directly from what you were saying that for, for a mo- for a moment that you know a lot of people like to hammer him on political posturing or shoveling an agenda because in too many areas of his work you can see a parallel to something somewhere in the world today but like you said this is political this this is political history you you there's aspects of it that point out go back to things turn of the century uh to the napoleonic era yeah hell a lot of the stuff that he's talking about here about the rise and fall you know economic rise and falls that goes straight back to rome for yes. crying out loud yes and even and the so, early writings of of our our uh american mm-hmm. founders of our, yep you know these same exactly. arguments and debates were happening about uh the economic policy of a of a baby republic so mm-hmm. and uh, not uh, unique to us. Uh, it's just it's just neat stuff. Yeah, uh, you know, one of the things. Well, a everything you've talked about here, a- absolutely. Um, yeah, political geekery. Now, what's funny is there's a contrast here. There was Haven's Declaration, and then there's the const in uh, Manticore. The Constitution contains a strong declaration of fundamental rights, but the franchise is limited to citizens who have paid taxes for at least five consecutive years. Yeah, that was interesting. Contrast. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yep. And I'll be honest, for personal love, I really, really, really like that idea. Of course, but there's pitfalls you would have to avoid. You look in history, just uh, American history in the last you know hundred years plus. Uh, the the whole issue with poll taxes and things like yeah, that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so there's pitfalls you obviously you would have to avoid. And you could we could get diverted into a very long discussion on good intentions there. But and, and Jim, this is where you would say, but this is not <laughs> the political science podcast except, or or except except in this in the context of uh, this particular uh, essay. Uh, well, I I have to disagree with that seriously because uh this honor harrington thing is political it's it's a huge politics is a huge part of uh and it's going to become increasingly important yeah it's already a huge part of the series as we're reading so but isn't isn't this cool i mean we we sit here podcasting as a you know three buddies we're all americans and we see our own country in various pieces of this story, whether it's our government or military technology, mm-hmm. all these cool things. Yeah. But we're also talking about France and we're talking about all these other places in yep. Mexico. At, I mean, Weber, I'm a fan. Uh, he yeah. has, he's told a story that's not uh, any one person's or one militaries or one. Country's. And I've had some chats with people outside of the U S and they say kind of the right. same thing They you know, it's like they, they can see, some of their own history or some of their own events. Yeah. In, in the in well, I'll tell you what it shows. It shows one thing for sure, and that is humanity won't learn a damn thing between <laughs> the now and the time that we go out to the stars, and we're going to take all our BS out there with us. <laughs> yeah, we're not it, good it's going to take the heat death of the universe. No. <laughs> Uh, oh, man. But that's the political geekry side of it. And then it's got the tech geekry, which, okay, another, just example. This means, quote, this means that a smaller ship with an aggressive sail handler for a captain can actually turn in a faster passage time over most hypervoyages than a bigger ship. There are, however, 
Some passages, known to starship crews as the Roaring Deeps, where exceptionally powerful, exceptionally steady grav waves operate. In these regions, the bigger ship with its more powerful cells is able, is able to make full use of its theoretical advantages and will routinely run down smaller vessels. He's got mm. a whole... and it's, yeah. the, the, he, he starts from actual physics and science and research. And I've mentioned this before, you know, like razors are based on real concepts mm. and has built an entire physics, fairly practical physics, that all the te- uh, that the technology and everything is based on, and I, I love it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I hate to say this because I love the I, I, I love the series. I, I you know Germany's Perry Roden was one of my intros. Uh, Heinlein Star Trek, uh, Star not Starship Trooper, but uh, Starman Jones. Yeah. Uh, yep. Star Trek the original series. I mean, th- these are the things that got me into science fiction to begin with. But that said. Something like we just read here is something you don't see in Star Trek. I mean, the crew actually sailing the ship. Your nav, your nav and helm actually have a real role than just to fill places on a set. Mm-hmm. The timing of putting sails up or taking them down. The it's you know the whole art of of this is here. As if angling this your really sails, is. how you get into the grav wave. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really neat stuff. I mean, th- these are ships at sea. But now they're ships in in space. In three dimensions. Yes. I I would love some animator someday to do because when you don't necessarily you don't always think about it when when you read the books, but one of the things I like about the space battles is you're talking big capital ships doing the kind of maneuvers that you see on Babylon five, you know, the spinning, the twisting, the flipping on different axes as they're bringing their weapons to bear. I would love to see an animation of that someday. Mm-hmm. So two other points to bring out here. And first of all, the section on the Solarian League, very, very important going forward. So keep in mind, yeah, remember the stuff that you've learned about it that there. And, you know, this short, you, you think, I, I guess this is the, you conflate, for me, sometimes you conflate uh, the, the Kingdom of Manticore with uh, Great Britain sometimes. Yeah. And the reality is there, there's one big difference. During the Napoleonic era, Great Britain wasn't the new kid on the block. <laughs> right now, Manticore's really only been around, what, 300 years? Yeah. It is kind of the new kid on the block. Uh, that, that it's, I, I mean, they're, 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 they're one of those neobarb single star nations out on the verge, yeah. out on the edge. But they've taken the opportunity that they got with the six wormhole junction uh, and really, really built something out of it. And just willy-nilly handing out titles to everybody as they walk by. Not only within within the Star Kingdom. I mean, most of the folks, and even within the Star Kingdom, it's it's more like the Brit. I think along with our tree cat names, I'm going to make up titles for us, too. I was just going to say... Maybe we need to do that too. I don't know. I'll have to think. I wonder how much of this is actually right out of David Weber's uh, Honorverse Bible. And JP, to answer another question that you asked, yeah, we're going to get some more of these and some of the other anthologies. Good, good, because this was. And there's also an entire book. Yeah, there's also an entire book called uh, House of Steel. Ooh, it's got a short. It's got a novella in it, and it also has a lot of technical information background information focusing on 
in this book, uh, The Star Kingdom and also The Protectorate of Grace. Great. Okay, our ratings. We need to figure out how we're going to do that, though, if we're, if we're going to actually cover that book or not. No, we we'll got time. Out. We got time. Well, we'll sort it out. Our ratings yep. for this yes, sir. section of the book, uh, I gave it a thumbs up easily. Yeah, I also gave it a thumbs up. Very much so. Hey, I'm the guy who's already has always said I love expositional writing, ah. so it had to get a thumbs up for me. So, uh, for the volume, and uh, I, I'm I'm going I'm giving this a four. Now, when I got when I got done with uh, the second the second story, uh, I was I was ready to to give it a three point five because I, I just oh this this you know. And then with that last section coming up that I thought was going to be a, a another appearance of Murray, but um, I was pleasantly surprised at that, so I took it up to a four for that reason. How about you, JP? I also gave it a four. Uh, it would have been higher than that except for the second story. Uh, what he said. Yeah. So overall. Four. For exactly the same reasons as JP. So, yeah. So overall, that gives us. Um, a rating of four for the three of us. Goodreads. Hey, the math was easy. Yeah. Goodreads, uh, report, thank goodness, because I, I didn't want to have to take off my shoes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so a Goodreads reports a 3.83 with 4,254 ratings, which, wow, that's down from the usual numbers that are in the tens of thousands. So I'll tell you what, you folks out there that read Honor Harrington, this one is worth looking at. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Amazon uh, gave it or has it at a four point four with two hundred and forty three rating. So all right, that's how we we add up, and we're right where we should be. Right in between them. Uh huh. Yeah. So on our next very exciting episode. Uh, We'll be looking at Echoes of Honor by David Weber, uh, main sequence novel number eight. And um, I would like to give a shout out to Hank Davis and the TPE Network of Podcasts. Yay. Fun and yes. informative podcasts. Good stuff. Okay. And any any closing remarks from you guys? No. Um, from me. Yeah. Uh, definitely want to give a shout out to, uh, uh, to Rhonda uh for the uh refer uh, the, and the the reference actually is background story on Eloise Pretchert um uh dark fall ah. so it's one of the bane free stories all right well in that case i will say also thank you for listening everybody we're we're enjoying doing this and knowing that we have uh, a lot of people listening to this makes it even more fun to do so yeah definitely keep the feedback coming we're, we're yeah it, it's enjoyable uh so i'll just say um good night and say also uh say good night jp good night jp good night everyone thank you for listening to honorverse today we welcome your feedback Email us at honorverse at tpenetwork.com. We are a proud part of TPE Network. 
Visit us on the web at honorverse.net, on social media, or tpenetwork.com. You can subscribe to Honorverse today by visiting tpenetwork.com slash subscribe. Visit TPE Network for the very best in podcasting. Opinions expressed in the show are solely those of the hosts. They do not reflect the opinions or views of Bain Books, the authors, or TPE Network. Visit Bain.com for the best in science fiction. Many of their books are available from the Bain Free Library found at their site. Theme music is Honor and Sword by Zakar Valaha. Check his website found in the show notes for all your podcasting music needs. Thank you.